let's hope I live up to that um, wonderful ex- high expectation introduction. Thank you, thank you, baby, I love you. Um, let me just pray really quick, Father. I thank you for your word this morning. I thank you that <clears throat> I am. I have the honor and privilege of declaring the word of the Lord to your people. So I pray right now that as I speak your word, God, hearts would be open, hearts would bow, and we would be in unity in one heart and one accord this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. How's everybody doing? Blessed. It's so wonderful to look out on this beautiful congregation where we get to come together one service at one time, and then to just kind of see it get fuller and fuller and fuller. So I'm excited about what God is doing here at Encounter Church Las Vegas. Amen. Um, Zach has been preaching on the presence of the Lord being a priority of our church. Now, how many of you guys know that have been here for a long time? That is the priority of this house is the presence of the Lord. And so I wanted to talk about a few things this morning um, that become a culture of who we are because we are a culture of the presence of the Lord. So um, this week, my awesome seven-year-old son, who's almost eight, tripped on his shoelaces running on the playground and head first fought the tetherball pole and lost the battle to the tetherball pole. He had the biggest knot on his head I have ever seen in my life. So he's sitting on the front row with two black eyes right now. Um, and this is like six days later, but when you, when that, something like that happens, you realize like, um, this is a pretty serious thing. And I was kind of freaking out as a mom. So we took him to the, um, emergency room. And when you go to the emergency room, they, what do they do? They take, they check your vitals. They have to check your, you know, your, um, he got to wear the thing on his, on his arm. So they checked his blood pressure and then they check how he's breathing. So they, they check his finger and they, um, listen to his heart. They do all those things. They, they check your vitals. Well, what are the vitals of a church that's, um, organically, loving the presence of the Lord. That's what I want to talk about this morning. What are the vital symptoms? What are the things, not symptoms, but what are the things that say, this is who we are. And so I'm going to talk about that this morning. See, when we talk about a culture, a culture is a way of life. Culture is not just, okay, we have, this is our, a culture is literally how people live in their community. There are different cultures all over our city. There's different cultures all over the world, all over our nation. But a culture is the way a group of people do life together. What is the culture of the people that love the presence of the Lord? And that's what I'm going to talk about. Um, The first vital sign I see is that things come to surface. Um, Who remembers when um, Hurricane Katrina hit and all of a sudden... I know this is a little morbid, but there were bodies floating all around the city because the flood reached so high that literally in the graveyards, the bodies began to come up to surface. So something that happens in the presence of the Lord is like the flooding of the spirit of God makes everything come up to the surface. So um, a few years ago, well, like Okay, so we planted the church six years ago, but for three years before that, so starting nine years ago, we started having like a prayer and worship service on Saturday night. I mean, Sunday night. And I, every single Sunday night, we would have service and I would find myself crying at the altar. 
for like three years. Not like, okay, a month, right? Oh, okay, she's going through something. No, not a month. Like three years every Sunday night. You'd think like I got delivered from some horrid past or something, but I was just, I was just, things were just coming to surface. Things I had never dealt with, things in my life, in my heart. The Lord just started to bring them to surface. Hebrews 4.13 says, The word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, cutting between um, the soul and the spirit and the joint and the marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes, and he is the one to whom we are accountable. Nothing's hidden from him. See, sometimes we want to put things in our heart aside. Okay, this is not for God or this is not for this person. But nothing is hidden when the presence of the Lord comes on a heart. Everything comes to surface. Everything becomes exposed. I asked myself going through this time, I'm like, am I ever going to stop crying? Like, is it ever going to just stop? I want to stop crying. I don't know if you've ever felt that for any period of time in your life, but I felt that for about three years. It's like, am I ever just going to be able to come to church and not cry? Like, it really isn't that serious. I would have these conversations with the Lord. I'm like, it's really not that Like, I don't even know why I'm crying now. Like, the first few times, it's like, okay, God, you're healing me. But now it's like, why are you still freaking crying? Stop. And that's, that is literally how I felt for like, like, honestly, like three years, my heart just began to become exposed in ways I had never thought were imaginable. I never imagined that it would ever happen. My heart become a place where it just was so exposed before God. The next thing, um, that I see that happens and it's actually before things can become exposed and you deal with them, I think you have to be authentic and transparent. And if you know, if you've known me, um, for any period of time, you know, that this is like my life story being transparent. This is like who I am. I was going to tell you a funny story. Um, so my older son, he's 13. He thought it was funny. Um, I don't know if you have an iPhone, but you can tell your Siri what to call you. If you don't tell them what to call you, they call you your name, right? So for a long time, my Siri called me Rochelle. And then I made it call me Master because I thought that was funny. But then my 13-year-old thought it was funny for it to call me a Jack ASS. So I'm sitting in a meeting, and and I press a button on my phone, and it says, I'm sorry, Jack, I didn't get that. And I'm mortified. Seriously. I think I was like sitting in some sort of counseling session and I was like, did my phone seriously, it just cursed at me. And so I, I asked, I knew who it was like right away. I knew who I'm like, David, what'd you do? And he starts laughing and he's like, it's so funny. And I was like, it's not funny. You made my phone cuss at me. He's like, mom, it's not a cuss word because it's in the Bible. So, and then in church one Sunday, it's like in worship. And I think somebody was playing with my phone and then my phone does the same thing. It's like, I'm sorry. I didn't get that. And I'm just like, are you kidding me? I don't know how to change it. 
And I'm pretty sure that if it's all tied together, so if I send an email, it will say Rochelle Jack Blank Wexler. So I don't even know how many emails I've sent, and it says that, and I don't know how to change it. But that is, that's my son. But that's my heart. My heart is just to be like, okay, like I'm a mom. I've got five kids, and they're crazy. My kids are crazy. And one thing I always tell people and I tell my children, and I learned this a long time ago, I don't ever give my children an expectation of being pastor's kids. The only expectation they have is to be my kids. That's it. They get to be Zach and Rochelle's kids. Not the pastor's kids of Encounter Church. They don't, ha- they don't have that expectation. Their expectation is to be my children. And it's different. It's a different expectation. You know, like um, things like, okay, somebody wants to tell my daughter that they don't think that she looks okay that morning. Well, she passed me first, so I approved it. You know, things like that. Like things that I feel like this is who I am and this is who my kids are. So there's no expectation on them to be anything else but who they're supposed to be. But the same with my heart before you as a pastor's wife. Like there are pastor's wives that probably have it a lot more together than I do. Or they pretend to and then you think they do. But I have always said from the beginning of of this journey as of planning a church is that I'm going to be as real and authentic as I can be because I don't have the time or the patience to deal with putting on a facade. There's so much joy in just being able to be myself. Here's the thing. If I have some expectation for somebody to think that this is who I'm supposed to be or supposed to look like I'm all I'm doing is trying to keep up with somebody else's expectation and it's exhausting. Now, if I just say, okay, God, this is who you've made me. That's your expectation for me. I can do that. I can do that a lot easier than I can if I allow somebody else's expectations on myself. But the second thing I see and that is such a culture of our church and our house, and it actually helps us to be able to deal with the stuff that comes to the surface, is a people that live authentically and transparently before one another. This is not the kind of church you come to and you have to put on some mask or some Sunday morning smile or, you know, um, I talked to somebody just a few weeks ago and they said, you know, I don't, I don't like churches where you go in and, and they, and they don't have it all together. I think you should put your best face forward. And I said, yeah, okay. I get that to a point, you know, put your smile on, put your best face forward, like be the best that you can be. But church should be the one place where you should be able to be who you are. Church should be the one place where you're, you should say, you know, I don't have it all together. I don't have everything perfect. I need Jesus. I need the family of God. I need people in my life. Like this should be the first place where you're able to do that. But sometimes it's like the last place. Sometimes it's the most lonely place because everybody lives in this pretend world and pretend bubble. Like we all have it all together when we don't. Like life sucks sometimes and this should be the place where you come find a refuge, a healing and grace for your journey. So I get like, put your best face forward, but like do that somewhere else. (laughs) Just be real when you come to church, you know? There are, there are mornings where it is not fun in my house, especially on Sundays. 
because I have to get ready. Every other day, it's just the kids that have to get ready. So there's no, I don't have to do anything with myself, but um, I know it's surprising. I don't wake up looking this good. <laughs> Takes just a little bit of work. My husband's like, how long does it take you to get ready? I'm like, I don't know. I haven't clocked it. I'm a little scared. But there are mornings sometimes in my house where it is not fun, especially on Sunday morning. And sometimes I walk in this building and I'm just like, I don't want to be here. But when you come into the presence of the Lord and you can really be honest with him and honest with your heart, that's where true change, true um, relationship, true revealing comes in the presence of the Lord. And so I think that one of our values as a house, I know one of my personal like mottos in life is authenticity. Just be authentically you. Here's the thing. Um, We all have our own unique spice and flavor and who we are. But if you're always trying to be somebody else, who's going to be you? If you're always trying to be somebody else or do something else, who's going to be you that God made you to be like nobody else can be the Rochelle that God's called me to be. Nobody else can do that. So if I'm constantly trying to be somebody else, who's going to fill the shoes of Rochelle? So you're called to be you like be honest, transparently be you. In first John one seven, it says, um, starting in verse five, it says, this is the message that we have heard from Jesus and now declare to you that God is light. There is no darkness in him at all. So we are lying if we say we have fellowship with God, but go on living in spiritual darkness. We are not practicing the truth. That's a whole separate message. Take from that what you want. But in verse seven, it says, but if we are living in the light as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son cleanses us from all sin. I hear a few things out of this verse. For one, if you're not living in the light as he is in the light, don't call it fellowship. Call it faking because that's what it is. Because if you're living in the light as he is in the light, that's when you have fellowship. Fellowship can't happen when you're not real. Fellowship can't happen when you're not being who you're supposed to be. It just can't. It's not real. See, sometimes we have all these different motives in our heart and different expectations or agendas. And fellowship can't happen. True interchange, true fellowship doesn't happen until all agendas, all ideas, all offenses, and who you really are comes to light. That's when fellowship can happen. Um. I remember this one, um, this one instance, we were still meeting in the school. And if you've, if you know me, you probably heard this story, but I'm going to say it again, but, um, we were still meeting in the school. So it was in the first nine months of the church plant. And at this point I had stopped crying every service. I didn't, I wasn't completely healed because I don't think we, we ever really are completely healed. Healing's a process. So is forgiveness. We'll talk about that in a minute, but my heart had become to a place where I was able to just just really receive from the Lord in a loving, joyful way. And I didn't have to cry. That was then. And um, I still cry sometimes. But I had got over that period of literally crying every service. And I remember I was just standing. I used to stand like the fourth row back and stand in the um, in the pew in like the fourth row back. And I'm just standing there and I'm worshiping. And I just really feel like the pull to go and worship the pull 
P-U-L-L, P-U-L-L, to go and worship at the altar. And I'm standing there and I'm worshiping. And the, I just feel the Lord drawing me. He's just drawing me to worship. And back then, um, Zach would do uh, worship and preach. So he was up there leading worship. And so I was just like, oh, God, I don't want to. I don't want to do that. I don't want to go to the front because people are going to think something's wrong with me and I'm supposed to have it all together because I'm supposed to be this pastor's wife that has it all together. And if you're pulling me to the front, then something's wrong. And so I'm like sitting there arguing with God, like nothing's wrong with me. And he's like, I know nothing's wrong with you. And I'm, he's, I'm like, well, why do you want me to go up to the front? And he's like, well, you can stay there and it's fine. But you can come up here because I have more for you when you take a step of faith. And I was like, dang it. Why'd you have to say that to me, Jesus? So I'm standing there and and I knew in that moment I could stay here. I could stay here or I could let my pride and all of that aside because I want all of you, Jesus. Because my pride in that moment wasn't worth all that he had for me. And I did. I just, I just went to the front and I cried for the rest of the service. And I cried for an hour after the service was over. I literally stayed at the altar the entire worship service, the entire message, all by myself. I'm sure people thought I was crazy. And then I was up there for like the, the hour after church was over. And God was just doing something in my heart. He was saying, I have so much more for you. I want you to have all of me. And he just deposited his heart into me. And I remember thinking, in that moment, had I just allowed myself to stay prideful or to stay worrying about what people think? Because really, if we worry about what people think, it's pride because it's just really just about you. But um, but if I had just stayed in that moment and just not obeyed the drawing of the Holy Spirit, I would have missed that thing that he wanted for me. I would have missed that moment. I would have missed that treasure. Um, the third thing I see, and I'm going to wrap up here in just a minute, is that we no longer are in critical condition. You know, as I was um, walking through the hospital, first of all, there's like nasty flu going around. And I don't know if you've been to the ER since the Ebola crisis, but they don't even let you in the door without asking you if you've been to Africa. It's the weirdest thing. They have this nurse sitting in the cold, freezing hallway because it was Wednesday night and it was pretty cold. And she's like, she has me fill out this questionnaire. And I'm like, have you ever been, do you know anybody with Ebola? Like all of this stuff. And I was like, that's just crazy. So I'm already freaked out about going into the hospital because nobody's sick in my house right now. So I'm like, thank you, Jesus. Sickness is gone. It's not coming back, right? I don't know how many of you guys have gone through this nasty bug, but you're like declaring health over every person in your family. I know we are. Once it hits one, it just goes through them all, and it's a nightmare. But So I'm, like, already freaked out, right? Walking through. I'm like, Josiah, do not touch one thing. Don't touch a handle. Don't touch the chair. I made him sit on my lap. Like, don't touch anything. And I'm like, I'm so freaking out about it. I'm walking through the hospital. I'm like, I think I'm getting a sore throat. What, what's happening to me? I'm like, <laughs> literally, I'm, like, freaking out. Because I don't, I hate the hospital. I, I hate the hospital. Like my husband is so passionate about like going and praying over people. And there's like some like Vicky and my mom, like these are ladies they are like, okay, where can we go? We're going to go pray for somebody. Are they, we're, we're going to go to the hospital. I'm like, I am not, don't sign me up for that group. 
because I don't even want to go. And I've gone like to pray for people in the hospital. It is not my first, it's not my first thing. Like this is the first thing I want to do as a pastor's wife. I want to go to the hospital and pray for people. Nope. Sign me off. I don't want to do that. It's like, I'm going to get sick. I just hate the hospital. So anyways, long story short, um, we're walking through and I'm like hand sanitizing everything, hand sanitizing the chair. I'm going to put my purse on. I won't put it on the floor. And I'm like, and you know, the hand sanitizer, the hospital, like, like you'll get cuts in your hands if you don't, if you use it enough, like it's tough. Right. So I'm literally like, I'm pouring hand sanitizer all over the chairs. It's, it was bad. Um, but I was, as I was walking through, you see, it's just, it breaks your heart. Most of them were older people with the flu and they have these breathing and, and you can see just the, the defeatedness on the faces of the family members. You see defeat, even on the doctors, you just, it's just this, it's like somebody let the air out of everybody's tires and they're just, it's their life is deflated. And I, and I began to think of this like critical condition, like. I, I was walking through, I'm like, I wonder if they're critical. Like, I wonder like how close they are, if, if they're going to die or something. It was really sad. It was really hard for me to be in that place, but my focus was on my baby. So I couldn't really, wasn't going to do anything. It was just me and him. But, and then I, so we're looking at no longer in critical condition. Sometimes you, when you go into a place and a, a church or even a gathering or, or you maybe have a group of friends and, and the whole cent, that's all centered on this thing called being critical. And it just, it breaks my heart. It so breaks my heart because we've developed this ability to be critical and we call it like prophetic or we call it like discernment or we, we use these church words so that we can mask it as something that it's not when it's really just being mean, like we're really just mean and, and we don't see people for who they really are. We just criticize, you know, um, my husband always says this, don't criticize the lack, become the more there's always going to be lack. But if you constantly focus on the lack, you're never going to do anything about it because that's your focus. If you don't criticize the lack, you decide you become the more, you fill in the gaps. See, I think that the church would look like a very different place as a whole. Um, in as a whole, like the church, and the, the universal church of the world would look like a different place if people instead of criticize what their, what their leaders are not or what their church is not and they just become the difference. I think a lot of people are called to fill in the gaps, but they're so busy criticizing the gaps that they're never doing what they're called to do, which is fill the gaps. So their purpose is to fill the gap, but because they don't, because all they do is can see the gap and look at the gap and criticize the gap, they never move off their butt to be the gap. Um, but I see this word called meekness, and um, my mom used to say, meekness isn't weakness. That didn't really help me define what the word was, but I just knew it wasn't weakness when I was younger. (laughs) Um, I found this really awesome definition of the word meekness. It says, there is nothing weak or colorless about meekness. It is the very opposite of all that is self-centered, and therefore is a quality of strength. It enables people not merely to be patient when suffering unjust criticism or persecution, but to be positively forgiving. Think about what that looks like to be positively forgiving, to be constantly forgiving, constantly releasing, 
constantly in that state of forgiving. You know, we talk about being the mercy seat a lot. Um, I think that I, I get a lot of questions sometimes about, um, how do you forgive people? What does that look like? I think that forgiveness works two ways. You forgive and then you keep forgiving. I know for my life personally, a lot of, a lot of that three years of me just crying all the time was me learning how to, um, release things in my heart, release people from offense, release, um, things that had happened to me, release people that I felt let me down. I was learning to release, but then after I got up and I was done crying, I had to remember that forgiveness is not just in a moment, but it becomes a lifestyle. There is the forgiving, but then there is the keep forgiving. Most of the time, the people that we need to release from offense are people that are in our life all the time. So what happens when you release them from offense and then you see their face? Well, they just all came right back up. Or they do something again to you. Or they bring something up and you're just like, well, I thought I dealt with that. Well, you did deal with it, but you have to continue your heart is like a garden. You have to, it has to remain, it has to remain like the mercy seat. You have to continue to cultivate the garden of your heart. So forgiveness is not just one time act. It's an act and it's a process. It's I forgive and I'm going to learn to keep forgiving. I'm going to release and I'm going to learn to keep releasing. That's, that's a part of what meekness is. Um, learning can I share something? I didn't ask Tony's permission, but I'm going to do it anyway. Because she put it on Facebook, so it's public. But Tony Robinson shared this beautiful, beautiful um, uh, message in, about our church. And something that she said just really stuck out to me. The whole thing is wonderful. So if you're on Facebook, go ask Tony Robinson to be your friend and then read her status. But um, she says, at our church... We know someone's name before we know their mistakes. And yeah, it's good. And I think the value of just that statement speaks so highly of not just the leadership, but the people of God in this house. That we're willing to know somebody's name and our desire is to know who they are before we know what they've done. Because it doesn't matter. Because we know that the presence of the Lord makes all things new, heals every heart. And so our heart is, I don't want to, I don't care what you've done. I don't care who you were. I don't care what you're now. What's your name? How are you? Who are you? What are you doing? Like the heart of the people in this house, look around. Your heart is to know someone's name before you know what they've done. You know, um, I used to say things, and sometimes I still do. I'm, I like to kid and, and try to pretend like I'm super pessimistic, and sometimes I can be, but because I'm not quite as optimistic as my husband, so it's easy for me to pretend like I'm not optimistic, and I am. But I used to say, honey, every meeting we go into, especially the dreaded people ones, you know. <laughs> you guys got some of you got that. Um, I say, okay, let's just have the lowest possible expectation. So no matter what happens, we're not let down. 
And for a little while it worked, and then you have to just stop being so pessimistic. But here's something that I'm, I'm learning in the tension of having a high standard and a high value of people without putting my expectations on them. The only way I can relate it is the way that I am with my children. And, um, you know, um, some people have, like, when I first had kids, I had these different expectations. They will all go to college. That will be the most important thing that they do. And now I have five, and I, you know, and they're all so different. They're so different. They're so the same, and they're so different. It's the craziest thing. But I know not all five of my kids are meant to go to college. I know some of you guys are like, what are you she talking about? Um, I want my children to have the destiny that God has for them. I want them to live their hearts, their dreams, their desires without my expectations. But my standards are high. So I've learned there's this tension of expectation for people or this tension of looking at our church or the body of Christ or people in general where I say, there's not, my expectation is not on you whatsoever, but my standard for you is high. So my standard for my children is high. They will serve the Lord. They will love the Lord. They will walk in their destiny. They will walk in their calling. But the one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, ten steps to get there are not my expectations. If that means you don't go to college, and like my oldest daughter, for example, she's like, well, mom, when I graduate high school, I want to go spend two years at Bethel in their supernatural school ministry, and then I want to go to two years at YWAM, and then I might just want to be in Africa for like three years. And and this is, so as a mom, now that might not be my exact expectations because Jesus, don't take my baby away, right? That's what I'm thinking as a mom. But my standard for her is living her life the way that God has called her to live. And it might look like that. It might look like that. So my heart is to always look at people with the love of the Father, but to always say, there's no expectation. but There is a standard. But with meekness in my heart, because I can be a place of refuge and safety, I can be a place where people can say, okay, she will know my name before she cares about what I've done. He will know my name before he cares about what I've done. If we remain in a place like that. Um, as I close, I just kind of wanted to share. I'm going to close right now. I just wanted to share some things that I've learned in this process because I think it is a process. I don't think anybody really ever has it all together. When they do think that they have it all together, they're either fooling themselves or lying to you. So you could just call them out on it. I would, but that's me. But I went through a season of really, so I went through three years of before we planned in the church crying, never getting up. Literally. Um, I remember this one moment really quick. Um, I was like crying and snotting into this carpet. I know, like, don't imagine it. It's not pretty. All I can think about was this is the most disgusting carpet that I have ever put my feet on and my face is in it. Like, that's what I was thinking. I'm like, my face is in this nasty carpet. Anyways, because my son Josiah at the time would strip himself to only a diaper and run around this church. I know, it's cute. It's 
baskets when the pastor's wife's kids just running around in a diaper. That was Josiah. That was good times. Anyways, um, but so I went through three years of literally just like bawling in the carpet, just three years of that. And then I, I come out of that season. I'm like, okay, God, I know your heart and I love your people. And then just a few years later, here comes like betrayal. Like I've never experienced before in my life. So I live my life and I'm like, I feel like I have your heart, God. I feel like I, I know your heart and I love people and I'm going to live this like truly authentic, transparent life. Well, how many know when you give your heart to somebody and then they stab you in the back, that sucks and it hurts like crazy. And so I was like, okay, well, um, well, I love some people and now I'm not going to trust anybody. And then I was like, how do I, how do I learn to trust again? How do I learn to get my heart back to this, that sensitive, tender place? Like, I seriously don't want to spend another three years crying on the carpet, God. Maybe there's like a quicker way to do this because that's not where I want to be. Like, I just, I know that I've, I've got to learn and grow and change, but I, I don't think I can do another three years on the carpet. And just spending time in his presence. And he was saying, it wasn't in vain that authentic, your transparency, your vulnerability. See, sometimes we mistake vulnerability for weakness. It takes a much stronger person to be vulnerable than it does to not. It really does. Anybody can hold fast and put up walls and, 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 block their heart off. That is easy. What's not easy is to just be vulnerable. And so I was like, God, what are you going to do? Like, I just, I need to trust again. I don't know if if you're in this place, but probably 99.99% of you guys have experienced the hurt of betrayal or, or, um, of just somebody just taking advantage of you. But when it happens and you're like, and you feel like, um, like you got smacked in the face because you didn't know where it was coming from. You're like blindsided. It just sucks. And you don't know how to get back to where you were. And that's where I was. And I, and I was, God, I don't want to cry. But, and then he was like, just spend time with me in my presence. And then I felt like, okay, God, well, I got pregnant with Layla. And so now I get to check out of life because I have this great excuse of being pregnant and not having to engage with life for anybody. And then the Lord's like, but that's not you. It's not who you are. You're being somebody else. Be you. Just give your heart away. And then little by little, I learned to trust more to give more, to love again, to release more, to just in the presence of the Lord. I've learned that in meekness, it means my heart is open to people. It means my heart is like a mercy seat. It means I forgive and keep forgiving. No matter what, I forgive and keep forgiving. It means that no matter What I try to push down and bury in my heart, in his presence, it's all going to float up to the top and you got to deal with it. 
The only way to deal with that stuff up there is through authentic community and transparency in my life. How can I ever make things right if I'm never willing to admit I was wrong? I've had to been able, I've had to been, a, been able to admit I was wrong many times. I have to. I don't always deal with situations with the most grace. I don't always deal with people with the most tenderness and care. And so I have to be able to admit it through transparency and vulnerability as soon as it comes up. And then with meekness, learn to release, learn to love. And learn to say, I believe in you. I have a high standard for what God sees in you. But never give somebody my expectation on their life. Can we pray? Father, I thank you so much for just the simplicity of your word that is if we are walking in the light as you are in the light, that's where fellowship comes. That's where true relationship is is birthed and built. And if we are if we are in your presence, God, you're going to make all things new. But first, you have to bring all things that are hidden into light. You know, my, um, my spiritual mother said, everything that you do in the darkness, God will shout it from the mountaintop. It's a little scary when she said that. But it's the idea that everything we try to hide, brings it to the surface because his presence makes all things new so father I just pray in this moment and I declare over your people right now you're making all things new I pray any offense or or bitterness or or past hurts or anything that has made us close our heart or or harden or or put any walls up between us and and people and us in your presence. God, I just pray that it would just wash away, like just wash away with the fiery love of God, with the renewing of the word. Just wash it away, Lord. You're making people new again. You're making people new. Father, I thank you for your word and your presence. And I give you all the glory, all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.